0: I'm Kevin Avertel. I'm the Democracy Commitment Coordinator on campus. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, Thank you to the faculty members. I think Dr. Dow and his class are here, and Shania, your class, and, of course, Dr. McCauley. Thank you for coming. Um, As you may know, this is um, a Democracy Commitment event, but it's also a one book, one college event. Uh, The book for this um, year is uh, Miss Marvel. And there's a lot of relevant themes to today's <coughs> event, one of which about the responsibilities of heroes and leaders. Um, and also, when I was thinking about this event, um, I teach political science, I teach American government. And over the years, I've just heard a lot of negativity about government, about <coughs> politicians. And there was one um, example I just wanted to show you of looking at public approval ratings of Congress. And um, you know, over the years, we've had Um, about 20% approval of Congress and around 75 to 80% disapproval. It varies a little bit year to year, and you can see how that goes back over time. But it's really been about 14 years since we've had any year in which Congress had um, approval ratings that were above the 50% mark. And it led me to believe, you know, is the problem always them? Are we just that? unlucky to have so many bad leaders, 535 bad members of Congress year after year after year, or is there, are we part of the equation too? Um, this is a, a government of, by, and for the people, so presumably we might be part of that equation too. Um, I've had my own suspicions over time, there's this old Walt Kelly quote that's been used over time, and I've seen the enemy and the enemy is us. Um, at least that's a possibility to where individuals, us, we have a role in um, the way things are in our society and our government as well. So when I thought of this event, I couldn't think of two better people, Uh, two colleagues of mine, Dr. Amy Williamson, a psychology professor, Dr. Jeffrey McCauley, sociology professor. Uh, I emailed them this summer and within hours, they had both accepted. So I really wanna thank them for volunteering uh, sharing their insight today. So at this point, I'd like to turn it over to them. Um, they're gonna make some opening comments, and then we'll turn it back to you for any questions, comments that you have for our speakers today. And please join me in welcoming our speakers.
1: Okay, hi everybody. Uh, my name is Amy Williamson. I am a psychology professor here at Moraine.
2: My name is Jeffrey McCulley, and I teach sociology here at Marine Valley. Uh, today, Amy and I, well Professor Williamson and I, are going to discuss, as Kevin said, the, the connection between individuals and society. So Amy will get us started by looking at some of the major concepts and themes in psychology that have to do with this topic, and then I'll take it from there and talk about sociology, and then we'll turn it over to you to see what questions or comments you all have.
1: Okay, so I'm going to start just by putting up a slide here um, that pretty much everybody is familiar with. Um, what, what would you guys call these people? Superheroes. Superheroes. Toys, okay. <laughs> yeah, t- figurines <laughs> of superheroes, right. Um, so most of the time when we hear the word hero, I think we tend to think of superhero. Um, so you know, the Spider-Man, Superman, and, uh, you know, I didn't want to, it's mostly men, so I, you know, Black Panther, um, but also we've got women superheroes as well. Um, and when we think of superheroes, um, I think we, d- we tend to think that that's what a hero is, right? That it's gotta be somebody who's doing something massive, that's, who's saving the world, who's you know um, going out there against some big evil menace to society or something like that. Um, but what, what we've really found um, in looking at heroism is that um, heroes can be everyday people who do small things to better society. Um, and sometimes even wearing the garb helps people feel transformed. Um, a lot of the, the, the imagery that we have with heroes are people that are wearing um, the images. And so we see like this young child here wearing the, the Superman outfit. Little kids like to dress up like superheroes, well especially this time of year, and kind of take, on, take that on. Um, And what we know about humans is that um, the brain is primed for selflessness, um, which may not seem to be (laughs) true when we look at what's going on in society. But um, if we look back um, from an evolutionary perspective, it actually made sense that we needed to help other people in order to survive, right? The group needed each other to survive. And so if we look at um, children as young as 18 months old, we actually see that they will reflexively help other kids that are in distress, so before we're even taught to do this, we are predisposed to do it. Um, the other thing that has come out of the brain research is that um we actually get a little jolt of dopamine, and so dopamine is like that feel good chemical in your brain that you get like when you eat something really good or you have sex or you know those it's it's like a <laughs> Uh, Yeah. Well, yeah. And then, um, you know, when we help people, we get it too. So this jolt in the brain actually shows that, you know, hey, do that again, right? Hey, do that again. That felt good. And so actually helping is something that gives us that little dopamine jolt. Um, And, but we do, we don't do it maybe as often as we would want to. So um, another chemical that's released in the brain is oxytocin, and we see that there's oxytocin released, which is that social bonding chemical. Um, Mothers get it released when um, they breastfeed, and we see that those things then show us that our brain is wired for this stuff, right? We also know that when there's damage to the frontal lobe, if people are in a car accident or there's something that hits the, the kind of executive functioning here, that they have deficits in empathy. So there's definitely some brain mechanism involved in us being empathic and being able to help other people. The one, so you might say, well, some people aren't as, you know, maybe as kind as other people. And what they did find was that there are two different kinds of brains um, in some of the newer brain research that there's egoists and altruists. So there's egoist brains and altruist brains. And basically the egoist brains are people who are much more rational who don't have the same jolt in their brain from from being kind. They don't get the same release of dopamine that somebody who's an altruist would get. So the altruist would get a little more boost. Um, So if you've ever seen somebody do something good and you get that like tingly feeling, and if you've ever had that experience where you see somebody doing something really important and you kind of get the chills, that's that boost, that's that, that jolt that's saying, hey, this is really good and, and I wish I was doing it. The other thing um, that we see with, with these images is that there's modeling that happens. So um, we can actually teach people to be more pro-social, and kids tend to have this um, kind of n- bent already, um, but if we nurture it, that children can become more empathic. So they'll speak out for somebody else. Like if you see bullying going on, you might speak up for that other person. Um, that that we can. It has to be taught. It's a muscle that has to be flexed. It's not something that comes super easy to everybody. Um, part of the part of the problem is that we also have something called the bystander effect, which anybody in psych might know about. Basically, if you if you fall down and get hurt. Um, the chances of you getting help are less if there's more people around you. So the more people that are around you, the less likely it is that you would get help, which is really, doesn't that seem counterintuitive, right? It's like, if there's more people, the more likely I'll get help. What actually happens is you have this diffusion of responsibility. So if you are, um, so once you know this, right, you can act accordingly. So that when you see somebody who falls down on the ground, you might say, oh, well, somebody else will help them. I got to run to class. Well, probably not. Probably everybody's thinking the same thing. So once you know that you have these biases, you can push past them, right? Okay, this is just another kind of example of, of, you know, a child being empathic, automatically being empathic. Um, And these images are really important because this is what we want to see more of in, in our society. I think all of us would agree you know, if I say, you know, raise your hand, do you want to see a society that has less suffering and less pain for people? How many of you would raise your hand? Okay, right, everybody, right? I mean, so, and then we have to look at, like, well, what happens when I say, okay, so, are you willing to go out and, you know, do something selfless for somebody today? You know, and you might, you know, right? So, how do you, how do you make sense of the dissonance? So if I want to reduce pain and suffering, if everybody wants to do that, how can I do it? And I think sometimes we think that it has to be something huge. Okay, skip that. Um, Sometimes it has to be something huge, like you know, here we see Martin Luther King and some of these people that we think of as heroes. Oh, I'm not gonna be that, so I'm just gonna sit back and and kind of not do anything. Um, But what we see is that people who make, um, they take tragedies, that happened to them, and they use that to help other people. Um, that that's usually the people who are out there doing this this kind of work. People who have something that happens to them, and then they turn their suffering into some kind of um, way, a purpose in life. Um, it just you know, an example I'll, for my own life. Um, I grew up, you know, kind of in a chaotic environment, and ended up. It, staying outside of my family, like family foster care type thing for a period of time. You know, I was on food stamps and things like that. And so when I went to college and I um, got out, I'm like, oh, I really wanna help people who are in the same position I was in. So I worked with the homeless for a long time. I worked in the uh, Cook County juvenile court system for a while with kids. And, and, and that was really about me wanting to help people who had been in my position not have to go through the same things I went through thinking, okay, I I'm gonna really, you know, make a difference here and help. I didn't think of it as being heroic, I just thought of it as like, okay, I'm just I just don't want anybody else to have to feel like that or go through those things. And those are just small ways that you can turn whatever's happened to you in your life into something pro-social and positive. And I'm sure everybody, you know, has a story that they could tell like that. Um, Unfortunately, from an economics perspective, we are basically self-interested people. You know, we care about ourselves. We like to, you know, think about all this, the selfies and posting everything. You know, Instagram. I mean, what we're doing is saying, "Hey, look at me! Look at me! Look at me! Look at me!" And what what we have to do is kind of push past that that tendency that's happening right now to focus on ourselves so much. Um, what we've seen over time is that Evidence kind of supports that the younger generation has become more self-interested, um, and that's partially because we've become more individualistic—that we kind of are focused more on me—and that's a function of our country becoming more economically developed. And so that's just part of it. That when we become more affluent, we tend to have less empathy, and then you see that that gap getting bigger between people who have and people. Who don't have and you know how can we become detached from those people right we don't want to kind of be around them so if we we see somebody who's you know homeless or we see somebody who's experiencing something tragic, we just think ah, I don't want to deal with that I you know I just want to focus on my own life and that becomes habitual and so again pushing against those normal kind of ways that we would be um, going about our lives um, so the message that I want to kind of give, so these are just some other heroes that I pulled. Um, and again, these are people who just in their own life decided to make a difference. And some of you, some of you may know, some of you may not. So um, just some, more, some of the more current controversial, Colin Kaepernick, um, Christine Blasey Ford, who testified about her sexual assault. Um, there's just some other people, a much younger person who's in the Palestinian, Mahala Youssef, who spoke out against... Um, for, for women and girls um, Oscar Schindler most of you probably saw Schindler's list okay somebody who just in their own world was doing something to try to make people's lives well in his case uh, you know keep people alive but trying to try make people's lives better um, okay um, so one of the other blocks to heroism I think is um, that We have something called compassion fatigue. So when a whole group of people is having some kind of an issue, we we tend to think, I don't know what I can do about that. But when it's one person that we can help, we're better at doing it. So instead of focusing on, but I don't know what to do for this whole group of people that's suffering, say, what can I do for the one person? I don't know if you ever seen the ads where they say hey, you know, help this one kid eat for today or something like that. Focusing on one person, they're more likely to get people to respond to it. So if you can focus on one person, you know, if you think about it today, who's one person in your world who could use help? I'm sure everybody can think of somebody. And what could you do for that person, right? That's the way to build build the connection. So instead of thinking about it as, you know, well, I'm putting myself out to help somebody. It actually, in the end, what the research shows is that you're better off, you're healthier when you're helping people, you live longer when you're helping people. So there is a benefit to you when you are doing these things. Um, it's a side benefit, obviously, that hopefully you're not doing it for that reason, but even if you are, go for it, right? At least you're doing something to kind of put yourself out there to be, to be more helpful. Um, and I think, more that's that's it and I'll turn it over now to Jeffrey all
2: right thank you Amy Uh, one thing that you mentioned uh, that just got me thinking uh, was when you see the person who needs help maybe we're less likely to help that one person Um, but something that I was just thinking about as you were talking was how we do that differently depending on who that one person is if it's a person who we might relate to in some way then we're probably more likely to step up and help that person than if it's somebody that we can't really relate with And one thing that I think is really interesting is if we kind of expand the definition of person to include animals. Uh, If we see uh, a person with a disability, we might interact with that person with a disability differently than, say, a dog with a disability. Um, The dog that has three legs, everyone's, oh, sweet little dog, and everybody gets excited about the dog with three legs. Um, But then people who have a different sort of ability issues, uh, we tend to not... uh, interact with them in the same way, the same excited way, um, more of a standoffish way. So that was just something I was thinking about um, as you mentioned that. Okay, so uh, like you all uh, were listening to Dr. Williamson speak about the responsibilities that individuals have to others, I'm going to shift a little bit and talk about the responsibilities that individuals have to society. And the major overarching concept that I want to discuss today is something called the social contract. Uh, so the social contract is the idea that we all kind of give up a little bit of freedom for the benefit of everyone. If, if we all give up just a tiny little bit of what we want to do, our own individualism, then maybe everyone will benefit. Uh, I, I start off with a really kind of a simple, a silly example that will maybe get you thinking, and that is uh, picking up dog poop. Oh, is that oh, one so of your pictures?
1: Oh, <laughs> oh, here are some
2: more of 80s <laughs> heroes. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I thought that was the OK, other. here we go. So please, no trash pooping. We shit you not. Uh, <laughs> now, I have, well, there's a fly in here. Uh, so I have a small dog, and I recently, over the summer, adopted a very large dog. And when it was time to pick up the small dog's poop, it wasn't that big of a deal, whatever. Um, But now I have this Pitbull Husky mix who is 700,000 pounds and his poop is about that much, too. And I swear it sometimes takes two bags to pick it up. Sorry if this is too much of an image for you. Um, Do I want to pick up that much dog crap? No, I, I do not want to, but I do because everybody's kind of got to do it right if if i said i'm not going to pick up my dog crap today it's not his crap uh i'm just going to leave it there today okay well if everybody thought that the sidewalks would just be lined with dog crap right so i give up a little bit of my own will where i say i really don't want to do this it's not a pleasant experience picking up I saved you the pictures of this, by the way. Um, it's, it's not a pleasant experience picking up that much dog crap, but I'm willing to do it because everybody kind of benefits if we all kind of do it together. So that's maybe a silly example, but hopefully getting you to think about what does it mean for the, what does the social contract mean? If we all kind of give up a little bit of our own self-will, a little bit of what we'd like to do, um, then maybe everybody kind of benefits. So with that idea of the social contract, I just picked a couple of behaviors or things that we could do uh, and a couple examples for each. Uh, So since this event is part of the democracy commitment, I thought one of the easy examples we could talk about is voting, right? Now uh, first off, I want to preface this by first of all saying, of course I acknowledge that not everyone has the privilege to vote, right? There are lots of reasons that people can't vote for age discrimination, for citizenship issues, uh, people who have felony convictions and so on. So not everybody's going to be able to vote. And I also don't believe that voting by itself is the single thing that we need to do to fix you know whatever problems exist but it is something that if you can do you can do then right it is it is a one option um now how does this fit in with the social contract well maybe it's a little bit of a pain to have to vote maybe the line is really long maybe i have to get up extra early that day before i go to work um, that's a little annoying but i still was able to vote and and had my um my piece heard. By the way, I just do want to remind you, uh, a little plug for Illinois voting. Uh, The election is coming up November 6th, uh, so Mm -hmm. it's voting for governor and lots of other sort of uh, key positions in the state of Illinois. Uh, If you're not registered to vote, you can still register to vote online through October 21st. Unfortunately, the register to vote by mail passed this Tuesday, so you can't do that. And there's voter registration forms right outside here, oh, if you see where Professor Navratil is. Um, you could also register to vote the day of the election. Mm-hmm. So if you, you kind of got to figure out where your polling place is, but it's not too late, basically. So, so voting is one way that we can kind of still participate in the social contract. Another example is jury duty. Uh, so jury duty rosters come from voting rosters. Uh, so if you registered to vote, you could sign up for jury duty. I'm not sure if anybody here followed the murder trial of uh, Jason Van Dyke of his uh, killing of Laquan McDonald, but some of the jurors spoke after, the, after their experience in the trial, and. Uh, all of those ones, and there were a couple who didn't want to appear on camera, they all said what a privilege and what an honor it was um, to be able to be on the jury. Um, they, the, the interviewer asked questions. Was it annoying? Did you want to do this? Was this kind of a pain? They said, oh, no, this was, this was an honor. Uh, so jury duty is just another example of kind of uh, civic responsibility, but also participating in the social contract. They had to give up their lives for the two weeks or however long this trial went on, um, but they per- performed a civic duty to... to to help society. Another example of participating in the social contract uh, or thinking about individual responsibilities to society overall is the idea of civil disobedience. So civil disobedience is intentionally breaking the law because a law is unjust, all right? If there's a law that's a bad law, well then maybe I should break it in order to demonstrate that the law should be changed. Uh, so I have some a uh, couple old examples and maybe some new examples to think about. Um, we could think about Harriet Tubman, of course, as an example of civil dis- civic disobedience. Um, it, if you're hopefully you're familiar with Harriet Tubman. If you're not familiar with Harriet Tubman. Uh, She was instrumental in the Underground Railroad, right? Helping get slaves, uh, slaves who escaped from slavery in the South, and bringing them to freedom in the North. Was this illegal? Yes, it was totally legal. It was very much illegal, right? Um, But hopefully, we could all agree that that was something that was good that ought to be done, right? This uh, civic disobedience, disagreeing with the laws in an activist sort of way, um, to benefit society overall. Uh, Moving forward in in the race movement, we could see an example of Rosa Parks with the Montgomery bus boycotts. So Rosa Parks, if you remember from history class, uh, is the person who refused to give up her seat in the front of the bus for the white passengers to sit there. She said, no, I've had a long day. I'm just going to sit right here. Uh, so here again, that was illegal. She went to court. They had to bail her out. There was all this sort of stuff that happened. Um, this was illegal, breaking the law, but for the benefit of society overall. There are lots of examples of of heroes that I consider heroes like this, who are willing to take a stand and break the rules in order to benefit society overall. Another example in the same line of thinking is the is the Woolworth. Uh, counter sit-in demonstrations. So at Woolworths here, raise your hand if you've seen this picture. I'm just curious if people have seen it. Okay, so a fair number of people. Uh, So it used to be at Woolworths you could go sit at the counter if you were a white person and you can order food and you could order your drinks and sit right there if you're a white person and people who weren't white, specifically black people, were not allowed to sit there of course. Uh, so some people said, you know what, screw this. This, this law is inappropriate. This is, this is not right. We're going to break this and we're going to go ahead and sit at the counter. Um, breaking the rules, they got in trouble. But if we just think about this picture for a second, um, <coughs> think about who is in the picture and imagine if you were in this time period which person do you want to be in the picture, right? Like, we know, how this, we know how this story ends, right? The people who are pouring the sodas and the ketchup and the mustard and the people sitting on the, uh, to the, people sitting on the counter, those are the villains in this picture, right? And the, pe- from my reading of it, at least. And from my reading of this picture, the people who are sitting at the counter are the heroes, right, so if you're to transport yourself to this time and space, which person do you want to be? How do you want to be remembered? Uh, to use a sort of political language, the people who are standing, the people who are pouring the sodas and the drinks and so on, were the conservative people of their time. Uh, so I don't mean conservative means Republican, I mean conservative means I'm trying to preserve and maintain the status quo, all right? That's, that's what it means to be conservative. I want to conserve, I want to preserve the way things are. Do you know that's what conservative means, right? I want to maintain the way that things are. So if the way that things are are unjust, to be conservative would be to maintain an unjust order. Uh, so when thinking about historic pictures like this, it's maybe kind of easy to think about um, who's on the right side or the wrong side of history. Hindsight is kind of 2020, But we can move forward and think about modern contemporary social movements and think, well, who's on the right side of this? Is my position, if I'm trying to conserve the way things are, Are the way things are any good? (laughs) Am I going to be 20, 30, 50 years from now, is a picture of me going to be the one where I'm the one posting, um, playing the mustard and everything like that? I don't want that to be my legacy. So uh, thinking about contemporary movements, we might think about how this might translate. So during the question and answer afterwards, I'd be uh, curious to see if anybody has any thoughts on that, or of course any of the issues that Professor Williamson and I bring up. Um, beyond uh, race issues, we could also look at sexuality issues. Uh, so this is a, a picture that I really like. Uh, be gay, do crime. Uh, so again, breaking the, breaking the rules because the rules are bad. Uh, so there are several examples that we could look at here. It used to be, prior to the modern uh, LGBTQ plus rights movement, it used to be illegal for two people of the same gender to dance together. All right, that was illegal, okay? Um, it used to be illegal for a people to wear articles of clothing that didn't match the sex that was assigned to them at birth. So if a person was assigned female at birth, and that person wore masculine, male-typed clothes, then that was illegal. People got arrested for that. People would people would be sent to jail for that and, and experience the horrors of the criminal injustice system. So an example of heroes to me are the people who stood up against this, one of whom was... Uh, Excuse me. Uh, one of these is Marsha P. Johnson, uh, who was one of the first people to actually throw a brick during the Stonewall riots. So if you're not familiar with the Stonewall riots, this is the, the uh, impetus to the modern LGBTQ plus rights movement. Uh, prior to Marsha P. Johnson's throwing of the brick, th- there existed a culture in which it was illegal for two people of the same gender to dance together, like I said, and for people to wear clothing that didn't match their assigned Uh, the the gender that was assigned to them at birth and uh, the police in new york city would regularly harass the the patrons of this bar called the stonewall inn and just constantly raiding this bar constantly arresting people throwing people in jail experiencing the horrors of the criminal injustice system Uh, until eventually people had enough They, they they fed up with it they'd had enough and they rioted and uh, one of the things they one of the many things that they did in their riots that went on for several days was pulling out bricks out of the sidewalk and throwing them at the police. And today, the if you ever celebrate the gay pride parades or these sorts of things that happen in the end of June, it's a commemoration of these things. Um, so remember that the that the gay pride parades, like the first one, was actually a riot. All right. Uh, Martin Luther King has a wonderful quote, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher it, so I'll paraphrase it, which is, a riot is the language of the unheard. People who aren't heard riot, there's no there's no other way to get their voices out. So Marsha P. Johnson is another example of a hero, in my sense, in, in the ways in which she challenged the existing law and order uh, through civil disobedience. Beyond civil disobedience, another way that we can think about uh, the social contract and and having responsibilities to society is simply by paying taxes. All right, uh, so paying taxes. Uh, there's I have a couple of things here and a video clip I'm hoping that will play as well. Uh, Leona Helmsley. I want to give an example of Leon, Leona Helmsley here. I found the most lovely picture I could find of her. Th- there really weren't there really weren't a lot of good pictures of her to find. Um, that was kind of one of the better ones. Um, Leona Helmsley. Uh, got in trouble for not paying taxes. And when she was in court, uh, one, of her pe- one of her house workers, one of the people who works for her house, uh, said that something that she was often heard saying was, we don't pay taxes, only the little people pay taxes. Right? She's this super wealthy person. I don't have to pay taxes. I'm super wealthy. right? Um, if you're in a privileged economic position in which you can afford lawyers and tax consultants and so on to figure out how to skirt around tax laws, you might not have to pay any taxes at all. I cannot afford lawyers and tax accountants and so on to skirt my way around taxes, so I pay all of my taxes. But apparently Leona Helmsley didn't. Another example of a person who doesn't pay their taxes, maybe you've seen recently in the New York Times, is our current president of the United States of America, Donald Trump. Uh, so this picture is taken in 1991. Donald Trump is on the right and his father, Fred Trump, is on the left. So the New York Times just posted this uh, some research that they published where when Fred Trump, the, the senior on the left there, Uh, He was getting pretty close to death in the middle of the 1990s, okay? And uh, he wanted to be able to make sure that his wealth transferred on to his children. Now, usually if you're a rich person and you're giving all your wealth away to your children, there's inheritance taxes, there's gift taxes, and so on, all right? But the Trumps tried to find a way to not have to pay all these sorts of taxes. Did anybody see this in the news? Anybody? Like four of us? Okay. (laughs) There's so much news happening always, it's hard to keep track of any one story. Anyway, uh, there were many, many, many things that they did, but the one thing that I want to focus on that they did was uh, Fred Trump passed on a whole lot of properties that he owned to his children, okay? Now, ordinarily, if I'm giving property to somebody else, there's a gift tax that you'd have to pay, all right? So what they did was they underestimated how much these properties were worth, so that way they could pay as little gift tax as possible. I won't bore you with the numbers here, but I have them here in front of me just in case anybody wants to know them. Actually, I will give you the numbers. So, so they claimed, so there were many, many buildings that, that Fred Trump passed on to his children. And overall, they estimated that these buildings cost $41 million. That was the lowest possible estimate they could get um, on how much these buildings were worth in order to have the lowest possible estimate on how much uh, gift tax they'd have to pay. So they said these buildings are worth $41 million. And then over the, next, over the course of the next few years, they sold all these buildings for $650 million. So I know property values tend to go up as time goes on. But over a couple of years, going from $41 million to 16 times that, being over $650 million, was a very obvious way of trying to get around uh, some tax laws here. Uh, so I think the state of New York is actually currently investigating that. But what's interesting is, even if they get in trouble for this, or if they got in trouble for it then, the punishment is not greater than the reward. So if they get punished, the fines would be in the tens of millions of dollars. To us, I imagine to all of us, tens of millions of dollars would seem like a lot of money. But when you've made over six hundred million dollars in the process, what's a couple ten millions of dollars, right? I would pay a couple tens of millions of dollars if I'm going to make six hundred million dollars, right? Uh, so if the punishment is not as severe as the gain, then what's, like, go ahead and do it, right? Like, what's, what's the incentive not to do it? Uh, so not paying taxes. Paying taxes is a, is a way of um, the individuals giving back to society. I have a quick video here that I want to play, hopefully it plays, I'm not sure if the audio is working up with this, we'll see. Um, uh, But a video that's, uh, (coughs) that features Elizabeth Warren, I'm not sure if anybody's familiar with Elizabeth Warren, Um, she's going to talk a little bit about the social contract. So let's see if we can make this work. It's supposed to go automatically, okay.
3: Sometimes. No,
4: I'm serious. Uh, I hear all this, you know, well, this is class warfare. This is whatever. No. There is nobody in this country who got rich on his own. Nobody. You built a factory out there. Good for you. But I want to be clear. You moved your goods to market on the roads the rest of us paid for. You hired workers the rest of us paid to educate. You uh, were safe in your factory because of police forces and fire forces that the rest of us paid for you didn't have to worry that marauding bands would come and seize everything at your factory and hire someone to protect against this because of the work the rest of us did now look you built a factory and it turned into something terrific or a great idea god bless keep a big hunk of it but part of the underlying social contract is you take a hunk of that and pay forward for the next
2: kid who comes along. So that's just another example of, you know, paying taxes as part of the social contract. Um, And I have two kind of last examples uh, that have to do with individual responsibilities more to each other than to society. And they're kind of, they they bump into each other because they're kind of contradictory. Uh, So when I go over these next two examples, we have to kind of think, When do I do one and when do I do the other one? Because they're telling you to do two opposite things. So the first one I want to go over is calling out other people when they're doing something wrong. That's one thing that we should maybe consider doing. And then the other thing we should consider doing is minding our own business. These are two very different things. They're opposite of each other, right? One of them, you're getting in somebody else's business. The other, you say, I'm minding my own business. But in different contexts, I think that in some contexts, one of them is the right answer. And in other contexts, that same one is the wrong answer. And same thing with the other one. Um, So I'll give a couple examples here, and maybe in the question, answer. Um, If if you have your own examples or comments, uh, then maybe we can hear what some of those are. So the first example I want to think about is uh, if you see something, say something, okay? Um, If you ever ride the CTA or Amtrak, they always say that. If you see something, say something. Um, So I like to think if... I'm trying to remember what order my examples are in here. Uh, If I see or hear somebody saying something racist, I'm going to say something. All right. Uh, So I have another video here that's going to play, and I just want to set up the video a little, a little bit. Uh, On the left, and maybe you've seen it, this was just happened like a week ago in the news, so maybe you saw it. There was a couple people shopping in a grocery store, um, some Latinas, yeah, exactly. And one person uh, came up to them and told them like, you know, you're in America, you need to speak English, yada, 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 all that sort of stuff that I'm sure um, many of us have heard. And then somebody else stepped in. Uh, So in the video that we're about to watch, the person on the left, you're actually not gonna hear much from her, but (laughs) you're gonna hear from the person on the right who's stepping in, who's calling out somebody else's. Bad behavior. So let's see if this one will load up here.
4: Harass people. Hey, you Get out of here now. You know what? Do not. I'm care. calling the cops. You know what? You leave these women alone. Get out. You know go. You come from uh-uh. generation. No, I you. do not. You I have respect, lose. and it you does not matter. You, you don't harass it. people like you this. Will lose your All right. You
5: know mm. what? You will lose this.
4: Country. No you, need yes, to you You
5: will. My favorite part's you right here. How you doing?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to leave that clip in there. I couldn't resist. Uh, so that's one example. If we if we see somebody doing something, if we see somebody doing something that we disagree with, uh, then maybe we should say something. Another example, uh, this is one that, as I am a person who rides public transportation a lot, uh, so something that I often experience, not myself, but I see happen with other people on public transportation is cat calling, all right? Now, this is an interesting one for how I, how to handle this. As a person who's read as a cis white dude, I don't want to go in with like a white male savior complex and be like, hey, don't harass her. Don't street harass her, et cetera. Um, I don't want to like step in as some sort of savior. Um, but I often feel torn. Like, what should I do in that situation? If I'm walking down the sidewalk and I see some guys who are har- who are harassing a woman on the street, what is my responsibility in that situation, right? Again, I don't want to be the person who speaks for her, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to come in and be like the, the savior, like that's not what my job is, but I feel like my job is to do something. I feel like in this situation, which unfortunately happens all the time, um, I feel like I need to do something. So my solution to this situation when I experience it is I'll first ask her if she's okay. Are you okay? Is this, like, are you okay? And then I'll turn around to this person and say something that I probably don't want to say right now because it's rec- being recorded and I don't want to get in trouble. So I don't know who's going to watch this. But I'll tell that person who's doing the street calling exactly what I think about their behavior. All right? But first, I always like to consult with that person. How are you? Do, you? do you need help here? Do you need help in this situation? And then if that person, depending on how, how that person responds, then I respond uh, in, a, in a manner that's appropriate for that. So one thing to do that individuals can have for their responsibilities to society and to others is to call out inappropriate behavior when it's happening. But now the contradictory one I wanted to talk about. The other thing that we need to do as our responsibility to societies and to others is to mind our own business. So what's the difference here? Uh, So maybe you saw an example, in the news, oh, this is probably a year ago. I don't, maybe not even that long ago. At Yale University, Sarah Brash was a student at Yale University, and in her dorm, she saw—could uh, you imagine—a black person sleeping in the dorm? And she was just so full with fear, as white people often are when they see black people sleeping, apparently, um, <laughs> that she decided to call the police on the other person, Lolade Cienbola called the police on her um, to have her arrested for trespassing. And you know what, it turns out that the person on the right was also a student at Yale University, right? She was, she was sleeping in, in the lobby area of her dorm, all right? Now, I'm on campus all the time. I've been known to take naps downstairs in the library because it's the quiet area, right? Um, please don't wake me up if you find me down there. Also, don't tell my boss. Um, <laughs> he might watch this. Uh, but nobody's ever called the police on me for sleeping in a public place, right? Um, that's something I have as white privilege. I don't have to worry about whether my, my very passive presence is threatening to someone else her sleeping was apparently threatening to, this, to, the, to the white bystander. So here we have the, this contradiction here. On the one hand, we need to call out inappropriate behavior when it's happening, but on the other hand, we need to mind our own business. Um, so I'd like you to think about in what situation is it appropriate to do one, and in what situation is it appropriate to do the other. Uh, that concludes my section. So, th- th- thank you. I don't
0: uh, <laughs> yeah. So I think. <laughs> yeah, so we can open it up for okay. questions and comments Perfect. at this time. Great. Um, so just raise your hand and we'll come around with a microphone, choice in the back. Just as far as taxes are concerned, uh, um,
2: if the government takes 100% of your wages, it's slavery, right? So at what point like, are you willing to give where you cannot protest or do something illegal to go against it? I don't think that the definition of slavery is the government taking 100% of my wages. I think the definition of slavery is a person um, having some legal backing for owning me. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable saying what percentage of my income I want to go to taxes because it kind of depends on how it's being used. I know there are many countries in the world where a huge chunk of people's, tax, uh, of people's income is taken for taxes, but in those places there's uh, free access to higher education for people, right? So if the government wants to take my taxes so that way you all can have free tuition, I would be uh, in support of that. If the government wants to take a big chunk of my income so that way um, nobody has to worry about whether or not they can afford to go to the doctor, I would be in support of that as well. Obviously, I need to have enough of my income left over since we don't live in a communist utopia um, where we've eradicated the concept of the work-money system. Um, Since we don't live in that utopia where we still do have the work-money system, I would like to have a little bit of my um, income left over to uh, buy the dog food that Charlie and Bach eat um, but I would be totally fine with a large portion of my income going to taxes, provided that it goes to funds, uh, causes that I believe in. I'm not sure if you have more to say about that. I,
1: I would agree. I mean, I think that t- taxation, I think when we look at taxes, part of the issue, at least for me and probably for other people, is where is that tax money going? Um, we don't seem to have a lot of say-so. Once it goes there, it just goes wherever the, the politicians decide it's going to go and there's a lot of waste and there's a lot of... Other things that happen, so I think it could be used better. Um, uh, but I agree with Jeffrey that I mean, I think if it's for the good of others, if we're talking about free higher education, or for ta- especially healthcare, care, I mean, people are going bankrupt for, you know, hospital bills, I mean, that's a tragedy in our society. I, I think as, as a model society, what we're supposed to be, you know, the United States is supposed to be this moral model, um, that, that that should not be happening. And so if taxes were able to, to go to that, I would be willing to pay
2: more. Just to, just to follow up a little bit more, um, the United States is the only modern industrial society that does not provide health care to all of its students as a basic fundamental human right. Like, we stand alone among the industrialized countries that don't provide health care to their citizens. So I just, it, are we really the model if we have people who uh, die in poverty due to lack of health care? Uh, oh, another question. When, when asking questions, please make sure you go into the microphone because they're going to record it and then the questions will go into the recording as well. (laughs) Somebody.
5: I was trying to give it to a student first. Was there a student that had a question? Okay. Thank you to both of you. Um, Great presentation. I know I personally learned a lot as well. I have a question about um, what advice might you give um, students or even your colleagues, your peers, you mentioned the social contract um, and gave great examples of civil disobedience and ways that we can participate um, to improve society as a whole, but you know, we're currently living um, in a time where activists and organizers are being repressed for being critical of uh, p- unjust policies, whether they're foreign or domestic policies. We're seeing students being reprimanded for some of the organizing they're doing on campus, uh, we're seeing professors being um, uh, reprimanded and facing severe consequences because they're speaking out and being critical of uh, domestic or foreign policy. So what's, you know, this, this repression, right, that's happening, what advice might you have for individuals who do want to participate but are also worried, right, about their standing as a student or as an employee?
1: It's not like my area, but I would say, you know, one of the things that uh, I've learned in the kind of looking at the research is that um, you, can o- you have to be willing to take a risk in order to be one of those those people who is really putting themselves on the line. That's where we, that, well, that's the heroes that we look up to are those people who have done that. Um, having said that, um, you know, I don't know that there's any, mitigating factors that I guess knowing that this is a risk that you're taking, but you know that it's for a higher purpose or a higher good is something you go into it with. And, and hoping that you can get other people rallying around you or get enough people around you that those kinds of consequences don't um, don't end up happening. But unfortunately, they do. I, I don't know that there's any way.
2: I think the first thing to think about uh, if you're in a situation like this is to first ensure your own physical safety. Uh, If you're protesting or if you're uh, writing, uh, to think about uh, your own physical safety. As an extreme example, we could look at the situation. Um, Unfortunately, I don't remember the person's name, um, but the resident United States, he wasn't a citizen, but he was a resident of the United States, a legal resident in the United States who worked for the Washington Post, who was critical of the Saudi Arabian government and the Crown Prince, MBS, has more or less ordered this person was killed, right? He he went to the embassy in Turkey, I believe, to get paperwork so that way he could file for his marriage license and then, you know, he never came out uh, and and we're just assuming then that he was killed because he was critical of the government. Uh, so in the first, and, and same thing with Dr. Christine Blase Ford, um, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, pain and suffering that you might have to go through in order to come forward. Uh, so the first thing I would think was to ensure your own physical safety. Um, beyond that, I mean, there's a, there's a million things to think about beyond that, but I think that would be number one. We mm-hmm. have another question here. Um, a lot of the, I guess, methods of giving back, you guys, described kind of ring a socialist bell to me, I guess. And do you think, um, where our country's at, do you think we could benefit from more socialist models? And if so, what like what specific forms can we implement? Absolutely. Uh, I think we could absolutely benefit from more socialist democracy models. Uh, so I already gave the example of uh, socialized healthcare, socialized, uh, Free access to higher education. It used to be in this country we would expect that in order to be successful as an adult people had to have a high school education. That used to be the standard. With my grandfather's generation he graduated from high school, actually he didn't graduate from high school, he dropped out of high school um, and was still able to get a job working at a factory where with a single income he was able to um, provide for his family and his wife didn't have to work and he was able to own a home where my grandmother still lives. Today that's not possible with just a high school education. Uh, the way that the economy has changed is such that you really need to have a college education in order for it to have, to come close to that level of success. So if in that time period we said that high school was publicly funded, I think that in this time period we should say that higher education should be publicly funded um, in addition to healthcare. Like I think that those are, so if you accuse me of, of stepping a little bit too close to socialism, I absolutely accept that and I think that that would be a wonderful direction to go.
1: You know, I, I think socialism in the political realm has gotten a really bad, it's almost like the, the, the evil word to say, so, um, and I know a lot of people, you know, it, depending on what your news sources are, you know, think the socialists are coming, it's like some really dangerous, horrible thing, um, and so I, I think part of um, what, what we were talking about, and I, I mean, for me, it's just, you know, it's basic human kindness, it's basic human compassion, I mean, I, and not even looking at it as a governmental model, or, or but you know what can we do to help each other? Because by helping each other, we're helping ourselves. That that there's something that we need. We have a shared humanity, and when we're allowing people to suffer um, for no good reason, uh, besides I you know um, I just don't. You haven't worked hard enough. There's this idea that <coughs> um, something called the just world hypothesis, or the just world. So. If you know basically what that means is that um, you get what you deserve and you deserve what you get. So if you don't have health care, it's because you didn't work hard enough. If you're poor, it's because you're not working hard enough. If you're rich, because you worked really hard. If you're in jail, it's because you're a criminal. And so we we tend to have this simplistic way of viewing things in the world that somehow that it's a just place. Um, and I think you know and and you know everybody's different in terms of how much they believe that. Um, but I tend to think that the world is not a just place. Having um, worked in the, the Cook County system and having been with a lot of people who are homeless and having been with a lot of people who are just fallen on really bad luck, that the system is, is not just and that we need to do things to remedy it. And that means going against, I think, you know, what Dr. McCaulay was talking about, going against some of these things that are considered norms right now. Because we're in a country where um, we have the resources. We are the wealthiest nation in the world. We should not have people who are, uh, that don't have health care, for example.
2: I'd also like to just piggyback off of your comment about socialism being a bad word. And if that's a bad word, communism uh, is even a worse word, right? Um, Communism often gets a terrible rap. and part of it is because a lot of governments that have called themselves communist did some pretty terrible things. Uh, but if we look at what has been called communist China or Communist Russia, those weren't communists in the sense that uh, there's this book. It's called The Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, where they lay out what communism is. And if we look out if we look at the system that was called Communist Russia or Communist China, that is not what is laid out in the Communist Manifesto. Um, that was like um, like a dictatorship, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a different than communism. With communism, there's uh, the public owns the means of production. Uh, everything is owned by the public. Uh, so a lot of times when people have this negative idea of communism, it's because they're thinking of these fascist governments that weren't in fact communist. Uh, so if we look, we could see maybe a, a mix between the two. Uh, communism and capitalism, maybe could work together. We, we already do that in a lot of ways in the United States. Um, I'm a great big fan of the public library system. <clears throat> Wherever I go on vacation, I always go to the public library there. And I'm kind of a nerd, and I like it, and I like to walk around and look at the books. Um, I went to Detroit, and the public library is across the street from the art museum. My spouse wanted to go to the art museum. I wanted to go to the library. We went to both. We were in the library for probably twice as long as we were in the art museum. Um, so the public library is an example of a communist system. So is this thing called the Fire Department. Right? Do we do we want to say if my house catches on fire, I better have paid ahead of time for the fire people to come to put the house out uh, out of fire, or do we just kind of expect well, of course the fire department's going to come? Right? We already have some systems in place that are public goods, um, so so maybe some combination between the two would, uh, or further combinations between the two would be beneficial. So, do
0: you have? any sort of a a sense of how things have changed over time in the terms of like, um, for example, if I have 800 friends on Facebook or I have all these Twitter followers, am I more connected today to others? Is there a stronger connection that I have to society because of that than maybe my grandparents who grew up in a really small farming community and didn't know that many people. Do you have any sort of sense of the way that individuals and our connectivity to others has has changed maybe from our generation from the previous generations?
1: Uh, Well, I think it's given the illusion of connection that it's a pseudo intimacy that somehow if I have 400 friends on Facebook or Snapchat or whatever I have, people are looking at my story but do they really know you? you know, are they really somebody who you could go to when you uh, need a ride somewhere? goes when, when you're sick, are they gonna help you? you know, are those people really your intimate connections? Um, so we've got a lot of superficial connections, friends. You know, Facebook did a good job of making everybody seem like a friend. Um, but in, a, in, in actuality, um, what the research is saying is that loneliness is epidemic in this country. That we are surrounded by people, but we are extremely lonely. We don't have the connection and intimacy that we want. And I think a lot of it is because social media has provided us with a pseudo-intimacy, making it seem like we are connected, um, when in fact we are further apart than ever. And, you know, I I don't know the answer to that, but uh, but building real-life connections obviously is the remedy for that. Um, I think that some people don't know how to, how to do that as well anymore because we've been using this technology to kind of give us the illusion that we have that connection.
2: I love this idea of pseudo intimacy. That's, I love that word. <laughs> I'm going to start using that. Uh, in sociology, I'm going to be a bad sociologist right now and, and not remember the exact author. I'm thinking it was Max Weber, uh, has uh, concepts Gemeinschaft, Gesellschaft, which I'm sure I'm also mispronouncing because I don't speak German. Uh, so in this in this framework, uh, this gemeinschaft is this sort of perspective from maybe earlier civilizations or more rural civilizations where there was a simple division of labor, uh, where people had uh, the relationships with other people were, very, were la- long lasting across the course of their lives. So the people I know when I'm young, I know those same people as I age and as I get old, I know the same people. Um, Uh, the same sort of job, living in the same sort of area. As we've moved into the present, and especially in more urban areas, we move to this Gesellschaft idea, where there's a complex division of labor, Um, the the way that we connect it with the production of goods, uh, work has changed. So instead of having one job, Kind of as my main career, and I'm always knowing the same people, now it's not uncommon for people to work many different jobs and for people to uh, have more fleeting relationships. So the people that I knew from my hometown in rural Illinois, I don't really see any of those people anymore. Then I went off to college, and I knew tons of people in college. I had tons of friends in college. That's when Facebook came out, by the way, 13 years ago. I had tons of friends on there, and I mean, how many of those people do I see anymore? I probably have a a very small handful of my college friends that I'm still close with. And then I went to graduate school in another physically different place, and again, same thing. I had tons of friends there, and then there's a small handful, and I moved to Chicago, and in an urban area, again, there's millions of people, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm connected with them. So we can see that there's been a shift, and it's really connected to how we produce goods and the way the economy works and requiring people to move around more. And the more that we move around, the less likely we are to sort of grow roots and stay in some area to have the lifelong connections with people that, that we used to have or that people who, stil- who stay in rural areas uh, still have.
0: Other questions? More questions. In the audience? <coughs> well, then I wanted to pick up on, I'll ask another one. Okay. I wanted to pick up, actually though, I want to ask it for the group. At one point, uh, you brought up, Dr. McCulley brought up how you used that framework of, of the dog analogy with the social contract. And I was thinking of all of the negative implications that happened, right? I think it was a very simple uh, example, but I'm thinking about, you know, you can, I live in a city and, and we have a big rat problem. And it's difficult to solve this rat problem because people aren't picking up after their dogs. And you know, my daughter will walk through the little parkway on the s- between the sidewalk and, the street and you track any of that dog stuff into your house, and it's a mess. Can you guys think of, so he used that example, can you think of any examples in which that social contract kind of being violated, if you, if if everybody did that same thing, how it could be a problem. So if nobody picked up after their dog, it creates this kind of big public health consequences, right? It's not convenient for you to do this one thing, but it it has negative implications. Can you guys think of, Other examples other than that dog example. Yeah.
1: I would think that maybe if everyone actually put the stuff that could be recycled in a recycling bin or didn't throw their litter like out the car window onto the ground, we'd be in a much more like eco-friendly environment. Like there we
2: can I just piggyback off of that, too. I love this example Uh, and hey, (laughs) Uh, th- recycling the things that are supposed to be recycled and not throwing in the recycle bin the things that are not supposed to be recycled. One of the biggest problems we have is recycle contamination uh, where people throw away stuff that isn't recyclable and then in a lot of times uh, the recycling company might not even accept that whole bag if there's any contaminant in it. Um, so if you have questions about that you could talk to Stephanie Presseller whose office is right there. Um, she's our sustainability coordinator on campus. And uh, other examples I
0: would jump onto oh, that Okay. our campus pays people to pick up trash because we want to have a nice campus so the money you pay to come here some of it goes to salaries to pick that up so if, if we would save money as a college or we would take those people and do better things then pick up our parking lot so that's a way that it directly impacts your tuition here on campus and in uh, in the buildings too so anyway sorry
1: you know, that's, uh, the social change that happened with that, though, has been tremendous. I grew up, probably older than most people in here, um, when I grew up, I remember when everybody threw their trash out the window all the time. Like, that was normal. You just tossed everything out, and the, the streets would be littered. with. And then this campaign came along saying, give a hoot, don't pollute. I know I'm oh, dating yeah. myself. like Millions <laughs> of years. But this whole thing where people were like, and then it was like the social stigma. Like if you put, get ready to throw your bag, McDonald's bag out the window, are like what? You're gonna do what? What's wrong with you? And it—it it was the social pressure in this this really advertising campaign. I think that really changed that. Where I really rarely see people throwing, ma- I mean, I'm talking you guys like massive amounts. People would just be tossing trash out the window on the street all the time. You'd see piles of it, and I rarely see that anymore. And I think I think most probably people now would, would say you know, to the friend, if you're going to throw some out window, don't do that. Like We just automatically have absorbed that now as a norm. Um, and I, so I think that's an interesting way that that, that that transition happened. I don't know if there's any other examples of that more recently, but um, there's certainly things we can change those things, I think.
2: Does anybody else have examples of that social contract like Kevin was asking about? I'm, I'm also curious just what examples you all could come up with. If we all just did this, then everybody would be a little bit better. Oh, we have a hand back here.
3: Um, one of the uh, social contracts that we had, um, probably maybe seven years ago, there was a rash of burglaries in our area and so, what we did as a community, we really got to know each other, and so we just started really looking out um, for each other. And the robberies and everything pretty much became non-existent because we looked out for each other. We, if we saw something going on, we even formed a, a group of people who would kind of monitor. Everybody would take an evening, just kind of drive around and see what was happening. And so. Um that was a great way for us to do it got involved with the whole policing part um really got familiar with doing things like if you call 311 you know you could get graffiti off of, off of buildings and houses and and so forth and so it's not uncommon for us to call 311 for a particular reason but it seemed like once we started doing that we had to call less because it was automatic So that worked out really well for uh, our neighborhood, and it was a great way to get to know everyone who lives in your neighborhood. So it was a great thing to do.
2: That's great.
0: I love that example. Mm -hmm. I love both these examples. I just, as somebody who teaches American government, I think we expect so much from our government, but if I'm not mistaken, we have laws against stealing, correct? (laughs) We have Mm -hmm. laws against littering. Mm -hmm. They don't always work. We can't always have government fix everything, Mm -hmm. but it sometimes takes either the social norms or being able to you know, you don't probably litter because you're worried about what somebody's going to say. And sometimes getting to know your neighbors in addition to having the benefit of having more friends actually helps prevent crime more than what you know, police presence or additional stricter laws can do. Uh, And that's kind of what I was getting at with uh, creating this event and thinking about some of the things that were brought up earlier that sometimes it really is on us uh, to think about it in those terms. Other questions, comments? What about from the panelists, from mm-hmm. Dr. Williamson or Dr. McCullough? Anything else that you wanted to consider for?
1: I, I would just say one thing. You know, as you go out into the world today and after today, to to really think about, you know, what kind of world do you want to live in? Because I think that's where we have to start. Like, if you want to live, you know, everybody says, well, you know, be the change you want to see in the world, or something like that. But but really, what's the small thing you can do? I mean, don't underestimate situational variables. That, that there's pressure to not act, and so how can you push? You know, just to think to yourself, how can I push past this to act in a way that's going to help out? You know, my my fellow man. You know, somehow, some way. Because if everybody does one thing. That's all it would take to really have this massive change. If everybody did one thing, there'd be a massive change. If 80% do one thing, there'd be a massive change. I mean, it, it doesn't even have to be everybody, but but asking yourself that question every day is how we get change. So if we really, truly want to see reduced pain and suffering in this world um, from, from others, then then that's all we have to do. It's really not that big. It doesn't have to be a superhero. It can be an everyday hero. And so thinking about ways that you can do that, um, I think is, is is something that you could do that would also benefit you. You'd feel better about yourself.
2: And I would say the take home from me would be to think about that Woolworths picture. Uh, I'm not sure if those people knew that there there were cameras there, but today there are cameras everywhere, right? Everybody's always like looking for an opportunity to record something, to post it online, to to make some viral sensation. So there are cameras everywhere. So if you're confronted with an issue related to diversity or social justice, kind of think about it. You know, keep in your mind always that there's always cameras everywhere. When you're walking in the hallways here, there's cameras in the hallways. If you're confronted with an issue, you about social justice or diversity think about you know if this is photographed right now or if somebody's taking a video of this right now how do I want to be pictured um, I bet those guys who are in that picture probably I, I, don't, I don't know but I'm not sure if, what they want their legacy to be but but history has been written and we know what their legacy is so what do you want your legacy to be when confronted with diversity or social justice you never know uh, who's watching
0: Please join me in thanking Dr. Williamson and Dr. Macaulay. Uh, As Dr. Macaulay pointed out, literally right out the doors here, you can register to vote. It's not too late Um, if you haven't registered already and you can actually find out where your local polling place is right outside. Uh, I wanna um, thank Troy and Tara and everybody at the library for putting this uh, event together and for, setting it up. And then uh, one final uh, reminder, on Mondays, we have uh, Democracy Hour. This Monday in U111, uh, we're going to have a discussion about the Me Too movement one year later, kind of look at some of the the changes that have happened. If you're available, uh, it's at 12 o'clock in U111. So thanks again, for everybody, for coming.